Okay, so here are the ground rules. Like I ask questions, Bobby asks questions, but if you think any of our questions are stupid and we should be talking about something else, tell us our questions are stupid and answer a question that you think we should be asking. Cool? Use the word stupid. So Luke, do you keep like a dress shirt and your jacket like in the studio and then just put it on right away or do you wear it all day? <laughs> I had a I had a University of Cincinnati Bearcats hoodie on before I uh, before I jumped on. Fantastic! So, so and, actually, and actually, I respect it that you put it on because I know you you're like I know you guys are informal, but you still have a lot of clients who watch you. So if you if you want to be sharp, be sharp. I think that's very cool. I'm I'm for it. Luke's yeah. clients are going to be like you're on with those two idiots again. I mean, what are you doing that <laughs> for? Again, this is the Feature Edge Podcast. I'm Jim Murio, as always, uh, executive producer, brains around the operation co-host, Bob Iacchino. We have one of our favorite guests, and I was saying right before we started recording, the last time we had Luke on was last winter, and I remember closing it down and going, shit, we have an awesome podcast. We get great guests, and I really appreciate it. Uh, Luke, you were fabulous. You are the chairman and CEO of Forest for the Trees, FFTT Consulting, FFTT what? Uh, FFTT LLC, yeah, it's a uh, macroeconomic research firm, yes, sir. A question that I want to say: I was just on Fox about an hour ago with Charles Payne, and I still think that the auction last week, the thirty year, which was not particularly well received, <laughs> I, I don't think it's an enormous deal, but I think it's a bigger deal than people are giving it credit for, particularly in light of the fact that now we're talking openly about supporting two wars. Am I reading too much into it or do you think it's a big deal, Luke? No, I absolutely think it's a big deal. I think, you know, I've been saying for a while, really started, er, I mean, we've talking about supply, demand issues in treasuries for a while. In early August, when they, they the uh, the Treasury did their uh, borrowing update third quarter, and I think they came out and said, we're going to borrow a trillion eight five net over the next six months. Uh, that was a big number. Uh, and then you had Japan come out and say, hey, we're going to start taking the brakes off of the, or the rails off of the yield curve control, kind of letting our bond market, our bond yields find a level, uh, on the, particularly on the 10 year. Then you had the U.S. downgraded and you had oil rise 30 percent in a short span of time. I, I wrote in early August saying that four really destabilizing things had just happened. And. By mid to late August was saying the beatings and duration will continue until the dollar is weakened meaningfully. Uh, and then I added as we got into September and oil kept moving and oil is weakened meaningfully. And that's been my drumbeat is, is the beatings and duration are going to continue until the dollar is marked down a lot. And so I think the 30 last week was a a more aggressive symptom of that dynamic, which is ultimately the net effective supply of treasuries is not only greater than what people think, but it is rising non-linearly. And what I mean by net effective treasury supply is the dollar goes up, foreigners by virtue of trade surpluses that they've recycled into treasuries over time, FX reserves, et cetera, Foreigners in total own seven and a half trillion dollars of U.S. Treasuries. Three point eight trillion of that is at the central bank level. Three point six of that is at the long end. They're notes and bonds. They're not bills. 
And so as the dollar rises, as oil rises, uh, these foreigners in aggregate also have roughly $13 trillion in offshore U.S. dollar denominated debt. So every tick higher in the dollar squeezes them on their borrowing. And as you guys know, you don't always sell what you want to. You sell what you can. What can they sell? They can sell treasuries. You raise dollars to service your debt. When your oil bill goes up, when your gas bill goes up, like when we go to war in the Middle East or when we go to war with Russia or Iran or any of these other people, you end up driving the price of oil up and they need oil and gas and commodities more than they need treasuries. And so what do they do? They sell treasuries. So every tick we have, so we have already this trillion eight five just for U.S. borrowing net in the back half of this year, which is an enormous number. I mean, it's a friggin enormous number. But then the net effective issuance is, is not only higher than that, but it rises nonlinearly because every tick higher in the dollar, foreigners sell to raise dollars. Every tick higher in oil, foreigners sell to raise dollars. Every tick higher in rates, you end up, it puts more, pre the whole system has been structured since 2014, whereby foreign central banks stopped growing holdings of treasuries in 2014. And there was a daisy chain of, of regulatory actions taken by the, the U.S. government that regulated first banks into buying more treasuries, then money market funds into buying more treasuries, then pensions into buying more treasuries, and most recently the Fed's raised rates to try to get U.S. retail to buy more treasuries. And so basically everybody's already stuffed to the gills with these. And so the more the price of the treasury falls, your hedge funds are hitting stop losses and selling. Your banks, you know, rates go up, the treasury value goes down, commercial real estate losses start to build. What do they sell? Well, banks in the United States are sitting on uh, about $4.1 trillion in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that they can sell to raise capital because they're taking losses on the CRE and soon on <laughs> Right. And that's, you know, oh, by the way, the whole BTFP and bank crisis from back in March. Yes, it was kind of a bank crisis, but it was really a not a bailout of banks. It was a bailout of the Treasury market because the banks could have just said, all right, the, the Fed could have stood aside and said, tough. You guys bought that stuff. Sell it. And you what you would have had was banks coming in, dumping treasuries deep in the hole, writing down earnings, right? I mean, and it would have fed on itself at a time when you already had volatility in the treasury market was at near all time highs. So there's, I think the 30 year last week was simply one of the more, you know, as, as, as we say in baseball, right? You buzz the tower, right? It was high and tight. It was up, it was a little chin music of, of, buyers of long-dated treasury. I mean, it is amazing to me. I give them credit because like they get punched in the face, they get right back up, they get punched in the face again. You know, it's like, oh, good. We're finally going to get a bid for this stuff. Here comes a war, you know, great. This is going to drive a bid for safety. And like my response, I, yeah, it did for like a cup of coffee. I tweeted about this last week. I said, you know, yeah, I mean, you guys know the phrase, right? You know, feed the ducks when the when, you know when the ducks are quacking, feed them. My response to that thirty year was, okay, I guess we've changed when the ducks are quacking, feed them to when the ducks are quacking, shoot them with a shotgun and serve them for dinner, because that was like what happened. So, is it like a be all end all? No, I mean, I think tomorrow, given what the ten year did today, this twenty year auction tomorrow could be a real friggin' adventure. You know, especially Bobby, given the escalation of the war. Bobby, do you think 
for the people who watch, do, do, do I give like a t- 10 second, Luke speaks so high. So much people, <laughs> so I'm just going to give, before you ask your next question, the treasury is selling a shit ton of bonds because they're profligate spenders. That is forcing the price down, yields up. Everybody who's holding those bonds are sucking wind and they have incentives to sell them as well. Bobby, you have the floor. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I want a little uh, PSA here because our, our audience is mixed, right? Some people know exactly what you just said, but there's a phrase in there that somebody brought this up to me last week. Said, can you, next time you have somebody on who can explain what they mean by duration, can you have them explain it? I think you're the perfect guy because you just talked about lengthening duration versus shortening duration. Can you explain in as plain English as a Luke Grumman is capable? What do you mean when you talk about <laughs> Why extending Why do you call him Grumman and I call him Grumman? What is the right way to pronounce your name? It's Grumman technically, but I've been called a lot worse than Grumman. I'll put yeah, it that way. I don't expect people, to, don't expect people anyway, to say yeah. Iachino correctly. <laughs> if I expected people to say Iachino correctly, and technically it's actually Yachino, I don't even worry about how I say people's names. <laughs> anyway. Look who you're talking to. Yeah. Right. I know, buddy. Yeah, so explain what you mean by duration just in plain English if you could. And then I got a follow up. Yeah, so in plain English, duration as I'm describing it is a phrase used to describe longer term bonds. And the reason why that's important is because the longer term the bond, the more the price rises when interest rates fall, and the more the price of the bond falls when interest rates rise. So when you're talking about duration, as it relates to this concept, you're talking about the length length of the bond. And the reason why that's important is it gives you a, a a sense of how sensitive it is to moves in interest rates. All right. So the follow-up would be, what is your base case take? Today, you mentioned what happened with the 10-year today. By the way, everybody, we're recording. uh, Today's October 17th. You won't see this till the 23rd. And as of, I think, last I saw 484. That's like the highest level on the 10-year since, what, September 2006? Yeah, something Something like like that. that. I mean, it's yeah, it broke than, back up of the pre-war high. So it was yeah. it went up Friday before the Hamas the Israel war started at four seven nine, I think, and that was sort of the hey, okay, we're going to get a bid, and it got a bid to four five nine, maybe twenty basis points, give or take, and yeah. right back up four eight five uh, a week and a day later. So, what's your overall take on that? It, it, us being at this level is two thousand six, and you could take it to stocks, you could take it to the war, where take it to fiscal policy, wherever you want to take it. I think it's a symptom of an accelerating U.S. and Western sovereign fiscal crisis centered in the U.S. because we're running the biggest deficits. We are the center of the system. And in particular, that the long end, that the 10-year is doing what it's doing with the ISM below 50. And not just here, in Germany. I mean, Germany's industrial production is and it's worse since 2020. That's and in like 2020, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was about 43 last time. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it is not just like a little recessionary. It mm-hmm. is very, very recessionary. And so, when you're seeing in these developed markets these recessionary readings, uh, the Home Builders Index today, ISM, and it's it's a, it's a mixed bag in the U.S. To be clear, retail sales today were very good, and I think that was a big part of today's sell-off. The bottom line is, is the U.S. has a fiscal problem that is too much spending, not enough demand for the paper. And given the centrality of the dollar 
in the system, this offshore dollar denominated debt I spoke about before, there is a, it's mechanical, but the higher the dollar goes, the more net effective paper for sale there is going to be. And it starts to get very nonlinear. So my follow-up was this. I had a conversation with somebody today who said to me that the symptom of the long end going where it is is not because people think inflation is going to go higher. It is literally the first step in the fall of the U.S. economy as a dominant economy because it's not inflation-based. It's based on people just not wanting the paper. I think it's the first step towards the Argentina with U.S. characteristics outcome that, that I've been looking for for a long time. People have said, well, we've got all this debt. You know, Only people with more debt than us are, are the Japanese, and we're just going to be Japan. We are diametrically opposite of Japan in terms of current account. They run a surplus. We run a deficit. The uh, net international investment position, which is just a, a fancy way of saying piggy bank, right? They've run surpluses it, through trade with the world for 50 years. And so they've got a piggy bank of 65 or so percent of their GDP that in theory, basically they've got dollar assets, euro assets, mainly dollar assets that they can break the piggy bank, finance their own issues. We do not. We've been running deficits. That's how the system is structured. It doesn't make us necessarily bad. It just means we're the opposite side of that. They can call up Washington and say, hey, Washington, give us our dollars back now. We have an emergency. There is no piggy bank. Washington can't call Japan or Europe or India or China and say, we need our money back. There is no money. Their money's here. And so what that sounds like, what that looks like is, is rates go up and up and up until the Fed the emergency bat phone goes right to the Fed and the Fed prints the money. So I, I think what we're seeing in the bond market, I agree, it is not an inflationary issue. The paradox all along has been that once you get debt to GDP to 120% in a twin deficit foreign financed nation like the United States, even if it has the reserve currency, when you have a net international investment position, a negative piggy bank like we have, because we've been running these deficits, the only way out of avoiding, the only way of avoiding a fiscal crisis, a debt crisis, is to run a sustained period of negative real interest rates. You have to basically inflate debt to GDP from 120% where it was two years ago down to 70 to 80%. Back in 2021, uh, I calculated in a report that the math was was simplified, right? All, all, all models are wrong. Some are useful. Model was basically, okay, we need to get debt to GDP from 120 to 70 to 80%. The reason I said that is 70 to 80 was the last time the Fed raised rates without really blowing something up, basically right away. It was also that 50% was also what the U.S. did from 46 to 51, 1946, 1951. Last time debt to GDP was over 100%, 110. They took it down to 50 in five years. U.S. real rates were at negative 13% uh, at the lows. In other words, inflation was 13 points higher than the long bond. Got debt to GDP from 110 down to 55, and then you can separate Fed and Treasury, and Fed, Fed can run an independent policy, and away we go. Using that math, plus acknowledging that the U.S. debt has grown by 8% compounded annually since 2008. Every year, debt goes up 8% on average. I calculated that in early 21 that the Fed and Treasury needed to let U.S. real interest rates, in other words, they needed to let inflation run above the yield on the long bond 
by somewhere between 12 and 18% for three to five years. So basically, <laughs> exactly, wow. right? Like, Jesus like, Christ. They'll lose their jobs, right? Yeah, yeah right? Like, it, it, it's so, it, and, and the crazy thing is, it looked like they were starting to do it. If you go back to 21, you're sort of like, hey, another stimulus. Everyone's going, wait, another stimulus? Yeah. <laughs> wait, what? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Bitcoin's going to the moon, inflation's taken off. They're like, no, 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 it's just transitory. You know, you know, these, these are not the, this is not the inflation you're looking for. Right. And, and I thought they were doing it in early 22, the feds, you know, late 21, early 22, you know, after Powell gets his jobs solidified, right. He says, all right, I'm going to raise rates. I'm like, no, he's not. And then I said, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, yes, he's gonna. So it, like for the first quarter of, of 21, I was like totally wrong because it was the math is very, very clear. If you run positive real interest rates with 120 percent debt to GDP and twin deficits of six to seven percent, you know, or fiscal deficit of six to seven percent of GDP, which is where we were back then, you're going to have a debt crisis. Like it is not even like it's not even a question. It is like a mathematical certainty. One plus one is two. The only question is, is when is it going to equal two? And you know, by April of 2022, after the invasion, I was like, oh, he is going to do it. Okay, well, then the only thing that's going to work is going to be the dollar for now. And then, and you're going to see treasuries, you're going to see everything break. And I think what we're seeing is sort of that math, it's a mathematical identity. You can't have positive real rates with 120% debt to GDP, and, and we're now up to 8% of GDP deficit. So I think what we're watching, I, I would amend what that person said in terms of the end of our economy. I think it's simply the U.S. moving into a secularly inflationary environment paradoxically caused by uh, the Fed's rate hikes. Because basically with a debt pile this big, if you raise rates, like take a step back. In 2021, they did whatever, a trillion in stimulus, whatever the number was. I don't even know. Let's just say it's a trillion for an easy man. So so one of the stimmy packages, you know, one of the stimmies was a trillion bucks, right? And it was deficit spent. Okay, great. That was a trillion in stimmies handed out to everybody. There's no functional difference between a, tr- a trillion in stimmies and raising interest expense because the Fed raised rates by a trillion dollars. It's the same. They're dollars. They're deficit-driven dollars. Now, who they go to is very different. The, you know, the, 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 the interest stimmy from the Fed taking rates to five and a quarter is that goes to wealthy asset holders and retirees and boomers. And, you, you know, there's articles talking about how the boomers are like just out spending money like, it, like it's a giant YOLO trade, which I understand there. It sort of is. But there's no functional difference between that STEMI and this STEMI. The only difference is, is, you know, this STEMI is like a morphine drip of interest payments every quarter. And this one is like, you know, a, 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 a shot into the jugular of like instant, like high-grade high heroin. <laughs> Um, and it's spent and it's gone and whatever, right? Every, you know, people put in Dogecoin and, you know, buy a, buy a, a Lambo and a, and a watch and do their thing, right? But so I think that's what we're watching is, is this mathematical, the Fed had the, the, the paradox is that the, the only thing that was keeping the U.S. from a debt crisis was the inflation the Fed spent the last 16 months fighting. And now we're on the wrong side of it. So, so what I, my question is going to be about gold and about central bank finance. I just want to put a fine point on what you just said. Are you saying that the only way out of it to reduce debt to GDP is for the government to practice some sort of level of austerity? I barely can say that word with our government with a straight face. Um, is that <laughs> what you're saying deep down, right? No. Well, it has to, it won't work because, you know, the, without, without some sort of productivity boom. And here's why you can do it 
if you do it soon enough, right? It's almost, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like, like, like you, you're, you eat unhealthy, eat unhealthy, eat unhealthy. And now you're, you know, 400 pounds. And then you go and say, Hey, I want to, you know, I want to run a marathon next week. And you're like, no, 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 you're going to like, you, you can't, you physically can't do it. Same kind of thing in terms of at 120% that the GDP with an 8% deficit and three and a half percent unemployment, they waited too long. And, and the problem is, is that let's say they cut the deficit from 8% of GDP down to two, which is where it historically has been with three and a half percent unemployment and when Volcker did what he did, et cetera. Okay, that means we need to take 8% to 2%. means we need to take six points of, of, of deficit, six points of GDP. That would mean GDP falls 6% immediately and permanently. Eventually, there would be a productivity gain down the road from getting the government out of the way and private, you know, free. Okay, but that's down the road. When you have 120% debt to GDP, there, there is no down the road. You take six points of GDP up by way of now, you're going to get a 6% of GDP decline immediately. You're going to get a recession to the tune of six points of GDP relative to wherever we're running. By way of comparison, the great financial crisis annually GDP fell three and it almost took out the banking system yeah. uh, by way of comparison in, in COVID annually, I think GDP fell six or eight. And, and that was, I mean, we literally shut down the economy to get that number. So in theory, you can cut government spending because we've waited too long. The second yeah. derivative impacts you would actually see, and we saw this actually with Obamacare, right? So when Obamacare was technically a tax increase, the, the, the uh, Supreme Court ruled that. In 2014, the Wall Street Journal said it was being done that would help reduce the U.S. government's deficit related to health care by pushing the cost of health care onto American consumers. Okay, that sounds good. Tax increase, reduce government spending. Great. By the That was December of 2014. By the third quarter of 2016, the U.S. deficit as a percent of GDP was higher than it was in December 14. Why? Because people having to pay for their own health care meant they didn't go out and shop as much. So consumer spending fell, which was two thirds of GDP, et cetera, et cetera. Dollar rose because we crowded out global dollar markets because, I mean, there's the second and third derivative impacts. And that was at lower levels of debt, lower levels of deficit. So really, the only way out is not cutting. The only way out, there's two ways out. There's some sort of productivity miracle, nuclear fusion, some widespread you know, portable nuclear fission, uh, uh, energy, boom, something. Or because they didn't do it in 21 when it was three years of negative 12 to 20% real rates, it's probably three years of negative to 20 to 30% real rates for the next three years. Basically, you have to wipe out bondholders on a real basis by and large, probably via some version of yield curve control where the Fed just says, we'll buy every treasury at every 10 year at three. And as a practical matter, as you guys know, the market's going to go, oh, and every mortgage back is going to sell themselves to the Fed. And then every piece of paper in the corporate market is going to sell itself to the Fed. And the Fed's balance sheet will go from whatever, eight today to 32. Yeah, 32 <laughs> and nine. <laughs> okay. wow. And, you know, okay. the dollar will get killed. And, the, and, and like, it'll, it'll be it. It'll, that's, the, that's the fix. And Okay. So here's my question, and this is, I think this is important because you mentioned gold a couple times before. This year, I'm sure you're quite familiar with the statistics, global central banks have been buying more gold than usual. The last three months alone, 
buying a crap ton more. That's the official technical financial term is crap ton. And, and gold has rallied 100 bucks in the last two weeks, despite the fact that real rates are the highest they've been in a long time, um, which gold hates, despite the fact that the dollar is rallying, and I do the rallying because it's rallying against those other bullshit currencies, for 12 straight weeks to put it in highs, despite the fact that yields are going through the roof, gold has hung in. To me, that looks like, holy shit, the gold market kind of knows something and smells something out. I personally think trade above 1950. And I think Brent was saying last week, he thinks that gold should be a cornerstone of your portfolio as much as 10%. I think the allocation should be a little higher. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it should be higher. I think people in this environment, I think people should probably have up to 20% of the portfolio in gold bullion for a very simple reason. Now, gold to me, to be clear, is useless for 99% of the long economic cycle. People say, well, gold doesn't do anything. That's exactly why you want to own it for that 1% of the economic cycle. When sovereign, when, when there's a sovereign debt crisis, when there's a global sovereign debt bubble and it bursts, you want to own an asset with no counterparty risk. Because ultimately, the way the system, the way sovereigns recapitalize themselves is by writing up the value of gold. Gold is telling us that the U.S. and the West more broadly in particular, and really all sovereigns, have... Not, not just have a fiscal problem, but that it is acute. The fact that gold is, has completely diverged from real rates in a way that it hasn't in 20 plus years. In the United States, by the way, rates in Argentina are at 133% and gold looks like this. Is the U.S. going to be Argentina? No. Is the U.S. suffering through something that Argentina went through 20, 30 years ago, that Brazil went through 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely 100%. Does that mean we're going to end up like them? I don't know. Probably not. There's some things that are different. But what gold is telling us is the U.S. has a fiscal crisis. The U.S. has a fiscal problem. And yeah, I think gold is a must own for this part of the long debt cycle. The only way the U.S. can make can, can, can pay entitlements, which are nearly 70 percent of receipts, Treasury spending, which is uh, another uh, 25, 30 percent of receipts. And defense, which is another 20, 25% of receipts, right? So you say treasury spending, you mean, de you mean debt service, right? Sure. Just debt service. Yeah, yeah. Debt, current, yeah okay. current year debt service. You're over 100%. So you can't pay just those big three out of tax receipts on a sustained basis. And you say, well, great, we'll just crowd out the world. Again, okay. But that then means the dollar goes up. And we just talked about the beginning of the show. What happens when the dollar goes up? Foreigners have seven and a half trillion they can sell, and they will until their hands bleed, right? The old... <laughs> yours, 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 yours. I and still can't say just... the word sold without saying doing that. Right? <laughs> All us old timers, right? So the hand... yeah. Yeah. And, and so the dollar will go up and then rates will go up and the rates will keep going. And at some point, the U.S. Fed will face a choice of, oh, the only thing we can afford. There, there's a rate where mathematically the only thing we can afford is interest. And if you think. The Fed is going to stand aside and lay off the Marine Corps and the Navy and the Army and, you know, tell uh, 70 million baby boomers, sorry about you. There's zero chance that's going to happen. The Fed's going to print the money or the Treasury will print the money. One way or another, it's going to get paid. So that is ultimately the message of gold. Gold's just looking at, hey, OK, entitlements are almost 70 percent. Interest is 30. There's 120 is defense. Then we got national parks, education, labor, veterans administration, all this other shit. Gold's going, you know what? <laughs> the more rates go up, the more insolvent they're becoming. I'm not selling yep. my gold. The last thing you want to do is sell your gold. Luke, you just mentioned a second ago how Obamacare was a tax hike, Supreme Court ruled it, and how GDP suffered. 
one way people think we can get past this is you see the smile creeping up is by raising taxes. How can you explain to people that you mathematically simply can't raise taxes high enough to do that? You couldn't do it across the board to people for exactly that reason is you're going you to have couldn't do just the rich to pay for this, right? That would be the one way where you, 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 in theory, and I, let me be clear. I am not advocating this in any way. We know you're not. We want to make sure everybody <laughs> listening knows you're not. That's all I need is that headline. Um, no, the uh, um, <laughs> all your clients because you your clients aren't poor people, is my guess. <laughs> in theory, if you look at the math and the concentration of wealth in this country, right? So the boomers own thirty-five trillion dollars, and it is subject to some version of the eighty-twenty rule, right? And they have 80, 35 trillion in assets, give or take. Maybe it's 30, maybe it's 25, whatever. It's a big number. There is a world where, in theory, you say everybody who has a net worth over, let's say it's $20 million. If you're worth more than $20 million, you have to pay some sort of one-time, very big wealth tax. And that is what people look at and say, oh, well, if we did that, then that would get us $10 trillion in taxes and we could buy back the debt. And look, in theory, yes. However, again, you get into these second and third derivatives where, oh, wait, that's collateral for this and this is collateral for that. And that means that has to be sold. That's what happens when you built a system that's based on debt rather than a sort of a neutral you know, reserve asset. So every asset, every every debt is somebody else's asset. It sounds good, but it just can't work. It's Even if you could do it politically. It's just that thing that people think that somebody who's worth $20 million has $20 million. <laughs> like they just have oh. it in an account. Yeah, well, <laughs> tell me the day when Jeff Bezos has to sell 2% of his stock. Tell me when that's going to happen to meet his tax obligation, because I'm going to front run the shit out of it. That's, that's, what, that's what we do. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Right. And I make no apologies for that. It's not illegal. You know right. Nancy Pelosi would be doing it too. Damn, she'll do it illegally before it's even announced. I'm waiting yeah. till after at least. And yeah. I'm sure there'd be Republican Congress people doing it too. I don't want to get weird here. But oh, yeah, no, so it's... from a perspective of that, the follow-up question to that becomes then the gold story, as Jim mentioned it, I see gold as, okay, so Larry Fink yesterday, Jimmy, I was talking to Luke about this before we went on. Larry Fink yesterday said that uh, Bitcoin is starting to act like a flight to quality asset. And I was on Coindesk TV this morning and I corrected them. I said, he's, he's mistaken. He's been out of the trading side of it for a very long time. And Larry said flight to quality, he meant flight to safety, right? But I argue that gold yep. is both, right? Yep. Gold is a quality asset as well as being your, your basically your best flight to safety asset, because it not only is the background of, you know, gold is likely to rise in this scenario, but gold is a return of capital asset. Period, yeah. end of sentence. You Period, know, end of sentence, yeah. Yeah, Jura, Jura, uh, not Jura, Warren Buffett likes to say, oh, gold doesn't make anything, it doesn't pay a dividend. Fuck you, Warren. 
I mean, seriously. You, you, no doubt about you it. You don't have. You, don't, you he doesn't drink nine cherry cokes a day. That's the no, most bullshit thing I've ever heard. <laughs> he he'd be dead. You know, I know he's alive. Well, gold, right. gold, gold pays a yield too if you lease it out and take the risk of not getting it back. That's the part they always That's the leave part out. they always miss, right? And you're Wait, talking about if my money's in the bank earning a return. It's because I'm a general creditor, and if I've got more than two fifty over there. I could lose my deposit. That risk. is a risky. I'm taking a risk. Yeah, and from that perspective, I mean, you don't you don't have CEO scandals. You don't have the the CEO sleeping with an intern that's going to hit the stock twenty percent when that comes out. Gold. I called. So the reason I'm saying this, I called gold as my trade of the year in November 2022 on a forward look uh, panel that I was on. And the other three people on the panel kind of chuckled. And I was like, look, you guys are missing the point. When you're talking about the best performing asset, it might mean that everything else is down. Like everybody's always like, oh, AI is going to outperform. Yeah, until it doesn't, then it's going to underperform badly. So that yeah. to me, I, I mean, am I crazy to think that I want, I have a lot of gold right now. So I'm talking my book, just for the record. And am I crazy to think that, like, I think that's my trade in the next 10 years? No. And, and here's why. And this is the part that I am consistently, my interpretation, at least, or what I, what I think I'm seeing, which is for the first time in any of our careers and in the career of anybody really probably as old as Buffett or <laughs> uh, maybe just slightly younger than Buffett, the risk. That's free, everybody, by the way. It's everybody. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, sorry. And for the first time in everyone's career, the risk-free asset has either inflation risk or credit risk, based on what I just said. We can't make ends meet without printing the money. And if we wow, don't print huge. the money, the price of the that's bond huge. is going to go down a lot. That's huge. So they either print the money, which is good for gold, or $100 trillion of bond value, 130 really, which is based off of a treasury bond is all going to get marked down. And what happens to the value of gold when the $130 trillion bond market figures out, holy crap, hey, have counterparty risk because the risk-free asset in the capital asset pricing model only doesn't default if they print the money to make keep it nominally money good. You know, it's kind of like a lot of things we've seen over the last several years where the government tells us something and we're supposed to believe it just because the government tells us that. And it's the same way where I see a lot of you know, and there's different time frames in, 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 in trading, right? There's traders or a short term, there's long term, but across the spectrum, but almost everybody looks at it and goes, that's risk-free collateral because those people told me it's risk-free collateral. And my regulator says it's risk-free collateral. And what else have they those, sort of, Those you know, banks thought it was risk-free collateral too, until they put it in their, you know, hold the maturity current. And all of a sudden it's down 30%. Yeah. It's down 30%. And, and. Again, you it's it's it either has inflation risk or it has credit risk, and this is what happens to. I mean, it's a fascinating thing to me. There was a uh, um, so Reinhardt and Rogoff they did a study called "This Time Is Different." You know, five hundred years of debt, sovereign I debt read crises. That book. Yeah, it's a great right. book. And a guy named Brian Hirschman runs Hirschman Capital. Took some of the data and looked in summer of twenty when U.S. debt to GDP peaked around one hundred thirty percent, and he said. Going back 120 years, using their data, there were 54 countries that hit 130% debt to GDP. Out of those 54, 98%, 53 out of 54, defaulted on their sovereign debt, via usually wow. via sustained high inflation, 
a few markdowns of, you know, restructurings, a couple hyperinflations. But you guys know, in our business, 52, 55% is friggin' unbelievable. You take mm -hmm. those odds. 60, yeah. oh my God. 98% <laughs> odds don't come around in this business. And oh, by the way, the one country that hadn't when he wrote that was Japan. And we can all look at Japan and go, well, Japan's, <laughs> you know, that whole, oh, well, maybe Japan, oh, Japan's in trouble now too. So really the number is 100%. Once you get to these levels of debt and deficits, particularly when you were a twin deficit nation, even if you are the reserve currency, because guess what? The Brits went through the same thing after World War I. They borrowed a bunch of money, they did a bunch of dumb shit, and they inflated their debt away. If we finish here, this is going to be the third consecutive year of losses for treasuries, and that's never happened. It's never happened. Never happened. That to me was shocking to hear. And so this whole this time is different. It's already different. That, that's yeah. exactly right. And, and the other thing that grabbed me about it, too, is, is it's not like, you know, I used to sit, you know, I was on, in, in equity sales. So I sat right next to the equity traders, right? So you see, you know, big seller, big seller, big seller. And someday there's like, okay, we're cleaning up a big seller. Right. So, OK, big sellers done. OK, maybe the stock can breathe. OK, let's see how it trades. Now the big seller is done. We saw it last week with the 30. <laughs> Another 20 billion ready to go. No, I mean, they aren't going to run out of shit for sale ever. And if the dollar keeps going up, it's going to be, hey, U.S. Treasury's got 20 billion for sale. And it's, oh, Japan defending the yen. Oh, Israel defending the shekel. Oh, U.S. banks, because they're taking losses in commercial real estate. Oh, U.S. pensions, because they got a bunch of retirees. Everybody owns this stuff already. They, there is so much supply that is net effective supply that is not added into the already eye-watering amounts of supply just coming from Treasury. So there, there's never going to be cleans up a big seller call in that market. Like, it, it's the only one with the balance sheet to do it. It's the Fed, which goes back to then gold. Right. Hold it though. So now gold, we talked about gold and I will agree hundred percent. So let's talk about other risk assets, I, I, risk assets, i.e. stocks. Um, cause I've, I've heard all you said and I'm like, shit, well, you know, rates going higher cause they're selling a shit ton of bonds, can't own stocks. But then I'm thinking, can you not almost not, not own stocks if the dollar you know, is going higher, it looks like, but really we know it's going to shit because of all the blown up balance sheets around the world. So what is the implications for stocks? For me, the implication for stocks is higher on high volatility. You know, I saw a headline go by today, Argentina, uh, Argentina uh, Merval index up 5% to all-time record today yeah. in local terms. Yeah, you got to be along the pace of yeah. right. <laughs> right. Right. Rates, rates in Argentina, I think, the, I think the central bank just raised them to 133% last week. That's what happens when you're a twin deficit nation and fiscal dominance it's not going to be exactly the same because we're the reserve currency, a much more diversified economy, blah, 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 whole bunch of, but directionally, what it suggests is a, the longer we get, we go down this path and the more obvious it becomes that, oh my God, they can't, they can't make ends meet without printing the money to make the ends meet in the, in sort of these big three expenditures, the more you go from 60-40, which is where everyone in the world, you know, they're 60-40, they're 40-60, right? 60% equities, 40% bonds, or vice versa. You you can't own long-term bonds. You can't. You you start shifting allocations out of long-term bonds into equities. And, you know, the bond market roughly is, I don't know, uh, it's at least twice, maybe three times the equity market here in the U.S. So that's, 
I think you'll see equities fall in gold terms. I think you'll see equities fall in Bitcoin terms. I think you'll see equities rise in dollar terms and rise against bonds. Uh, what about real estate? I think real estate will be a case by case issue, depending on location, depending on usage. Generally speaking, I think it probably goes higher overall. If you just take the average piece of basically, I think you're going to want real estate that people with lots of stocks want. I think okay. those pieces of real estate will do really well. Then it, it's more hit and miss after that. Okay. I want to say something before I give Bobby the next question, but we talked about earning rate, uh, rate of return on gold. We talked to Brian London last week and he brought up something that was brilliant. And I have a lot of gold, you know, physical gold. You can technically earn a rate on that if you want to sell calls against it in the future. My call spreads against it because you don't want to be called out and whatever. And, and be screwed. But if you sell things against it, if you're willing to pay that money, if you lose on that, because your gold will be going up in value huge. So it is possible. But Bobby, what do you got? Yeah, I uh, I wonder if you can touch on commodities at all, Luke, because I, I've got, I got a pretty strong price action pattern to the upside in crude. And one of the things I do when I get one of these price action patterns is I start to look at what in the fundamentals could trigger it. Right now, the pattern's already triggered. It's predicting a sh uh, shoot up to about 92.17, so let's just call it 92 in WTI. And that's the November futures contract. And when I look at it, I see an acceleration of, I'm just going to call it a conflict. I, I don't even really want to talk about it, but the Middle Eastern conflict, so to speak. Biden's going over there, which in theory, in theory, means more of a sort of conversation about rather than battle, right? Uh, diplomacy, as they call it. I don't see anyone there with a diploma in their hand, but whatever. And I look at it from a perspective of the Russian Central Bank uh, said today that they reiterated that OPEC Plus is likely to increase production in the beginning of 2024. I don't buy that for a second. It wasn't Novak. It wasn't Putin. It wasn't anybody in the know. What else would hurt the U.S. as they support Israel, support Ukraine more than $100 crude. Now, I had a crude oil long. I covered it at 91. I got in on August 31st. I remember the day I got in and I covered it at 91. It's a good trade. And I'm sitting here waiting and I see this pattern and I'm like, okay, the fundamentals to me, end of summer driving season, et cetera, overall commodities themselves in a slowing environment, is crude the only one that can go up or is it some hidden thing I'm not aware of? I think there's probably some of the softs can go up given conflict related stuff the weaponization you know you like get the wheat usual in ukraine for instance wheat right. ukraine exactly gas you know we that kind of stuff gold, could be weaponized silver, silver yeah. and silver and gold together so not those but copper when i look at what's happening with housing uh in terms of like the the national association of home builders is starting to get pretty sloppy on the downside you know there's i think it's a story of sort of short term industrial demand being a drag on copper. And then you look at sort of the intermediate and longer term supply side. There was an article last week in the FT where one of the biggest copper producers in the world is like, we can't find enough of the stuff to even get close yeah, to hitting the EV targets we need to hit. So yeah, that. those are the two balances. So I, I, to me, from a commodity standpoint, the oil side, I think, is the most interesting Sadly, partly because of this conflict. I mean, it's very interesting when you, a lot of people have poo pooed sort of the, you know, the bricks and the leverage they have, or whatever. Okay. I look at Russia and I look at Iran and they combined 
control 23% of the global oil export market. The United States couldn't cut a fifth of that number without sending oil to 150, in my opinion, maybe 120, but whatever, a lot higher. Let's, let's not, let's, because they, I'm, I'm adding a preciseness. It's a wild ass guess. I don't know what the number is, but a lot higher, let alone the whole thing. So you're in this very delicate situation where you, you're, you're fighting in Ukraine and the Russians have whatever it is, 17%. The Iranians have six. You're dancing with them. And don't let Hezbollah in there. We're trying to talk. We're trying to... You can, in my opinion, the read-through of U.S. reticence... You know, I thought it was really interesting last week. Wall Street Journal was out within 36 hours of the attacks. And boom, they're running a front-page line, front page story. Iran. Iran helped them. Iran helped them. And... Within 24 hours, the, the administration was backtracking. And I think part of the reticence of the U.S. administration to just tar Iran with this brush, I think, is the real politique around if oil goes to 120 here, 110, 120, if, they, if there's an OPEC oil embargo, yeah. the treasury market, you know, that gif of the, the doll throwing up all over itself, you know, it's like that's going to be the treasury market will blow up. So I think there is, a, and and then furthermore, you see later this week, who are we? What are we doing? We're going down to Venezuela. Hey, best buddy, I know we've been. Oh, crap geez, I saw that. It was, I want, I'm so glad you brought that up. That was right? crazy. So like, yeah, yeah. So like, that's not a. That's I don't think that's a, 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 a coincidence. It's interesting you say that in sort of like the the, the tactical uh, trigger pattern on, on oil because I look yeah. at this and if I'm Putin. You know, uh, Louis Gavin, a great point. It's like, what? You know, he was on Macro Voices and he, he said, she has bought up a bunch of oil, you know, and people say, oh, he's going to invade Taiwan. And maybe he is. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I don't think so. But Louis proffered a, 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 an alternative theory, which is Putin gave him the heads up and said, hey, we're this winter, we're going to properly weaponize oil. You might want to buy oil and gas ahead of oh, this. That's winter. really Just, interesting. So it's yeah, with the tech, you know, when the when the narrative and the tech, you know, the tactical signals start matching up, that's I, I think it's something you have to pay attention to. Luke, can so, I show Luke, you a reverse repo chart and just kind sure. of get your take on it? And again, this is like a public service announcement. Yeah. Yep. So we, what do you make of this? Take this with a grain of salt because my I I, I am just a no enough of no know enough about this to be dangerous. I, what I this is effectively money that was sterilized by the Fed to prevent it from going out into the economy mm -hmm. and creating inflation, which is now being drained and flowing into basically T-bill markets right. to uh, finance the government. So basically when you see Yellen say, hey, I'm going to issue more in bills, in the context of this chart, my read of that is Yellen's real message should say, oh, shit. I can't issue more at the long end. Do you see what the long end's doing? Where's my cheapest, easiest source of liquidity? Issue more bills. And so this, I would look at this as a fuse, if, if I'm right in terms of that interpretation. This is sort of a few. As that number gets close to zero, you should start to see more fireworks in the treasury market, more volatility in overall asset markets. The Fed jawbone no more rate hikes, more trying, trying to jawbone the dollar down. And I think ultimately the way that ends is 
the Fed going back to QE or some version of it, regardless of where oil is, regardless of where gold is, regardless of where stocks are, regardless of where inflation is. In my 36 year career that like three different times, I've known exactly what the repo and reverse repo market means and the implications. And then I forget it for about five years. And then when it comes back, I got to relearn like, what is it again? And I don't know why I have this mental block. It's probably like trading options. You stop trading options for a couple of years, I imagine you forget some of the characteristics of them as well, right? So I mean, when banks have my other question to you, Luke. When banks have excess cash, ca when banks have excess cash, there's no reason for it to just sit there. So they go no. into short-term interest-bearing vehicles at the Fed. Then they get it back the next night. That's reverse repo. And when I see that chart just headed down, like Luke said, there's less and less cash at banks to do this. That's the way if they keep raising the rates on, on reverse repo, if the Fed does, that's a way of draining liquidity from the system. Yes. Right. And, and the opposite. It gets closer and closer to zero, that vehicle goes away. Yeah, yeah. that vehicle is basically financial. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's in reverse repo or it's in T-bills, basically, money market right. T-bills. So it's sort of like... Six of one, half dozen of the other. Uh, they're in short-term cash, but the T-bills are, I think, explicitly financing. They're giving Yellen an ability to finance these deficits as they're coming through and in a way that we're the lower bond of the of the rate range, right? Is is through reverse repo. That's where they set it. And I mean this. I say it on our trade year podcast as well. You could think Bobby and I are dumbass, but we get kick-ass guests on the show. Thank you so much. And actually, I, I mean, I, I could. You are one of two, three go-to people when I'm trying to get people on the show. I'm like, we've had Jim Bianco, Cameron Dawson, Luke Roman, not in that order. Roman, not in that order. You're one of the pe people that I put out there where people are like, you've had Luke on? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll come on. You're literally <laughs> one of those awesome. people. Oh, I appreciate That's it. That's really cool. I appreciate Thank you it. very much, Luke. It, it's always oh. great to talk to you. I can talk oh, to I you. I enjoy talking to you guys. It's always, it's always a lot of fun and uh, great format. So really, really enjoyable. Awesome.